Well, good morning again. We want to just let middle schoolers know that they can slip away for their Sunday school class at this time. Is there any middle schoolers? That's great. And also, I just want to uh, point our attention back to the seminar. I know that we're in the <clears throat> let's come into the fall season, but we just came out of summer season. Some of us are still in summer mode. But if you notice that we're heading into the fall, we have previews out there. Please grab those because they'll describe to you what's happening in the fall from men's classes to women's classes to, you know, signing up to help serve in the cafeteria, which is opening up on the 18th. So a lot of things are beginning to happen right now. And one of the things we're doing is a seminar. And why we need you to sign up at the Information Center today is because we're providing a continental breakfast. And so we have a new cook, and he would like to know how many muffins to cook, how much fruit to procure for that seminar. You say, what's the seminar about, Pastor? It's about how to live a life of significance, how to bring meaning into our lives, and how to be a person of influence, how to leave a legacy in the lives of people around us. I think this is critical stuff. And I know David is a very humorous, a very articulate communicator. Uh, he's very effective at sharing his faith. And he will give us clues and tips on how to be effective communicators to those that we care about. So please uh, sign up for that class. It's next Saturday. And then also, uh, I want us to pray this morning. You know, how many realize that we've just come out of this crazy pandemic? A lot of kids are really apprehensive about going back to school uh, I've been chatting with some people. Some of the kids are like two years delayed in learning. I mean, they've struggled through this time. And then the teachers, my daughter actually is a teacher, and she was saying to me, you know, kids haven't been in school in two years. You can imagine them coming back into a classroom. And I mean, they're literally unruly right now. So uh, it's a challenge for the teachers as well. So I think it would be appropriate if we would pray for all of our teachers and all of our kids going back to school, that God would help them and that they would learn some good stuff, right? Uh, I, I still think we still need to learn things like how to read, how to write, and how to figure things out, right? The three R's. So let's stand and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. So Father, we wanna thank you this morning for those that are studying right now, for the students that are going back all the way from preschool to university. Father, watch over them, protect their hearts and minds, help them to have an amazing season of learning. Uh, may this not be a lost year, but may it be a, a year where they move forward. I pray for those that are teaching them, that you would strengthen them, grant them wisdom, understanding, give them a heart for these kids, Lord and give them uh, the skills and tools to help these uh, young people, Lord, as they have to learn to settle down and apply themselves back into a more regimented time in their life. And we just pray for that kind of enablement and help. And I pray today, as even as we open up your word, Father, I pray that you would open up the eyes of our understanding, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and, of, uh, and uh, knowledge and of, and of revelation, Father, so that we might get to know you better that we might understand your ways, that we might gain insight into who you are so that we can get to know you better, Father, and to be stronger in our relationship with you and not only being empowered by you, but being able to actually have an influence and an impact in the lives of people that we come in contact with. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen, you may be seated. So I've got a very intriguing topic today. Uh, you can tell by my title, 
uh, when God becomes our enemy, and how many go, that's, I never want to have that happen in my life. You know, that's not the experience I'm shooting for. But just think about the terrifying state. I, I would say it's probably the most terrifying state to be in is when we find ourselves in conflict with God. And is it ever possible to be having God against us rather than for us? You know, I love that scripture in Romans 8.32, one of my favorite texts. If God be for us, who can be against us? But that's conditional, if God be for us. And then I also thought, you say, well, I'm a Christian pastor. God would never be against me. But I think as we take a look at this amazing chapter in the book of Jeremiah, back there again, chapter 21, we're going to discover something that we've all run into in our lives. And I believe it's really important that we understand this because when we make decisions to move away from light into darkness, in some ways we're moving away from God's purposes and will for our lives, we can find ourselves in opposition. We can find ourselves with the opposition against God. And really, God becomes an adversary rather than an advocate. Not that God is out here trying to condemn people. Don't misunderstand. But I think we need to understand, <clears throat> we, there's, you know, there's really nothing that can separate you and I from the love of God. You know, I, I love that. How many like Romans chapter 8? You ever read that? You know, neither life nor death, neither principalities nor powers or sword or famine and blah, you know, down the list. But there is one impediment we create ourselves. It's a self-created impediment between ourselves and God. And the book of Isaiah tells us that. It says, your sin has separated you from me. So sin becomes an impediment in our life and moves us into a place where we're, we're going to have problems. And we're going to look at that this morning. Now, you know, a lot of times when I'm preaching from the Old Testament, people are saying, yeah, but that's the Old Testament, Pastor. Well, that's not what the New Testament teaches. Well, can I tell you that God is consistent? He's never changed. He's always the same. And I would say that most of the New Testament writers, because at that time there was no New Testament, they were the writers, right? They were really steeped in an understanding of the Old Testament. And so I think James, in one verse, is going to summarize the chapter we're looking at. And here's the verse. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. <clears throat> I don't know about you, I would rather have God as my friend than as my enemy. Anybody else want God as a friend rather than an enemy? I want God, I want to be on God's side. I want to have, you know, a relationship with him like Abraham. You know, God said about Abraham, Abraham, my friend. You know, Jesus said about his disciples, he called them friends. We want to be friends of God. We certainly don't want to be an adversary to God. And he tells us, what, what does it mean here? Because I think we read this verse, and sometimes, you know, we get a little confused. I don't think James is speaking of befriending people. I don't think that's what it means at all, friends of this world. God loves people. God has always loved people. <clears throat> Actually, Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came in the world to save it. So God is interested in saving people. We've got to get that in our minds. But you know, what he's, what he's talking about here, friendship with the world literally means that you and I begin to embrace the value system that's in rebellion against God. And we have that today. We have a culture that for the most part is, is in contention with God. They're in rebellion towards God. They're actually anti-God and anti-Christ. That's the world in which we're living in. We all know that. 
we sense it. But here's the problem. When we begin to embrace the values of this culture, we put ourselves at odds with God. There's the problem. And I find that there's so much, I'll call it the strong current of society. It's sweeping through our land. It's moving at raging speed. And many Christians are moved over and begin to embrace these ideas that are anti-God and anti-Christ and puts us at odds with God. That's problematic for us. And I think we need to understand that. God is interested that we would embrace the right mindset. We'd, have, we'd see life through the proper lens. Because you know, when we embrace the wrong mindset, I'll tell you what happens. We think we're, we, we think we're being kind. We think we're being tolerant. We think we're being understanding. We think we're being affirming. But what we're really doing is enhancing a brokenness and a destructiveness and a dysfunctionalness in our culture today. And people are actually becoming more disillusioned, more fragmented, more broken all the time. So we're not really helping people by agreeing with all this behavior because God sees certain things as being always right and certain things as always wrong. As a matter of fact, I was listening to a lecture here this week uh, on the attribute of God as truth. And he said something so profound. Stephen Lawson said, you know, truth is reality. And who determines what truth is? God does. God determines what reality is. Unfortunately, a lot of people are now starting to live in fantasy. And there's the problem. And so we don't understand anymore which way to go. So James here is challenging us. And I think as we come again to this book of Jeremiah, and we're in chapter 21 this morning, we find a significant chronological movement. See, chapter 20 ends about nearly 10 years earlier. All of a sudden, you have a 10-year jump. And if you don't understand that, you read the next chapter and you go, this doesn't make any sense, you know? But I know Jeremiah is a difficult book because he's hopping all over the place. So, you know, for me, I'm a chronological, sequential person. And all of a sudden, you get this major jump and it throws you for a loop. At least it does for me. So I'm going, what's going on here? And so I think I'm giving us all a fair warning. He's jumped about a decade. And, you know, all of the time, remember I, I shared a few weeks back when I preached last that Jeremiah was a little upset with God because he was called to do this, you know, message that he didn't really want to say, but he needed to say because people needed to hear it, even though he didn't want to say it. People were unhappy with him. And he was telling God, I really don't like my job. And yet you called me to it. What am I supposed to do? And now everything that Jeremiah has been saying is now coming to pass. So everybody now recognizes he's truly God's spokesperson. And all the other people say, oh, don't worry about it. It's all going to work out. It's not working out. Now we're at this stage. The king is now surrounded by the Babylonian army surrounding the city of Jerusalem. This is where it's at. The king and the people now have so hardened their hearts, they've disregarded God's word. They've disregarded the counsel that God brought through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Babylon is right there on the doorstep. They're being besieged terrible situation. They're in crisis. King Zedekiah had made an alliance with Egypt. Of course, Egypt's kind of letting him down right now. And so he's all alone now and he's going, well, maybe God will help me. Isn't that great? You know, it's amazing how in the last resort, people get spiritual in a hurry. And King Zedekiah now wants to know what God has to say. And so as we look at this chapter, I believe we're going to learn a powerful lesson, how we become God's enemy. And Basically, what happens when we're in conflict with God? And I think these questions are going to be answered very clearly for us in this chapter. And I want to look at three things we need to understand 
in becoming an enemy of God. Now, I don't, I, my prayer for every one of us is we'll leave this place as friends of God. That's my prayer. And number two, my next, second prayer for you is that you're gonna develop a great deal of moral courage because I think we need it in this age because we're living in a challenging moment. But let's take a look here. Three things we need to understand in becoming God's enemy. First, what does God require of us? What is it that God wants, expect for us to, to be involved in? And what happens when we disregard God's plan and we disregard God's word and we disregard God's will? What happens in our lives? And then we begin to embrace the values of this culture that's in rebellion against God. What is the ultimate end to all of this stuff? That's what we're gonna see. See, I believe that any one of us in this room can be seduced by sin. And every one of us in this room can be entrapped by it. And eventually we begin to embrace a corrupted value system because it self-justifies our behavior. So we move from a position of being God's friend to becoming his opponent. And the one thing that we should grasp is that you and I are no match for God. You know, I said to myself as I was preparing this message, I said, I'd rather be the friend of God and have the whole world against me than to have, be the friend and have everybody in the world love me and to have God as my adversary. That's kind of where my mind is at. You go, pastor, it can't be that drastic. I believe it is that drastic. I believe if you're gonna be a friend of God, you're probably gonna have enemies coming at you that you didn't even ask for, you know? Because they're gonna be opposed to what you stand for, what you believe, and who you represent. It'll happen. So I just put down, what will it profit us if we embrace the values of the world and we find ourselves at enmity with God? If God be for us, who can be against us? But if all the world is for us and God is against us, how are we gonna stand? You're not gonna make it against God, I'll tell you. So I believe that usually clarity comes in our lives in crisis. <laughs> how many go, that's true? You know, because we can be drifting along in life, you know, having a wonderful time, a little oblivious, and then crisis strikes. How many know crisis gets your attention? Anybody here besides me, crisis really, you know, rattles your cage, gets your attention? No, you gotta pay attention now. You're in crisis. And so King Zedekiah, you know, he's been rejecting the messaging for a decade. Yeah, I just forget, you know, Jeremiah. Now, where is that prophet? I need a word from the Lord because he's seeing everything that Jeremiah said is now all happening right before his eyes. And now he's thinking to himself, I'm in trouble. And so he says to him, you know, is this a test of faith or is this an act of discipline? Do you know trials can be one or the other? It could be a bit of both, Right. How many know there's times in our lives a trial comes, it's a test of faith. Will I trust God in this time? For sometimes, for some people, the test is actually, the trial is actually a correction, course correction. Uh, we need to be challenged. We're, not, we're drifting. We're getting off the, the highway of eternal life. We're drifting into the ditch, and God's trying to bring us back on the road. So we go hit a trial, and it makes us recalibrate, rethink of what's going on in our lives. So Zedekiah now sends a delegation to Jeremiah in order to find the mind of God. Starts out here in verse one. Then the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him pasture. Now, this is a different pasture that was in the previous chapter, okay? Not the same guy. The son of Micaiah and the priest Zephaniah, son of Messiah, and they said, inquire now of the Lord for us because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us as in times past so that he will withdraw from us. So, who is Nebuchadnezzar? Well, if you read your Bible, he's quite famous. He becomes a world dictator. He's the 
Babylonian king. He's an empire builder. But I'm going to tell you who else he is. He's God's rod. He's God's disciplining hand against the nation of Israel because she has strayed from God. You know, God is going to discipline. Now, how many know discipline is actually an expression of love? You go, Pastor, that's a really painful expression of love. I go, yes, but it's an expression of love. And then you say, why is that? Because when you don't love someone, you don't discipline someone. You just let them do what they want to do. They don't develop any sense of self-control and boundaries in their lives. They become a menace to themselves and they help hurt other people. And they become, they become a problem to society. So discipline actually is an expression of love. And God says he disciplines everyone he loves. So he's going to discipline us. We have to understand that. That's part of love. And so here we see in this text, uh, uh, Zedekiah now is thinking to himself, you know, in the past, in our history, God actually delivered us from these kind of world empires. Matter of fact, one of his predecessors, Hezekiah, was delivered from the Assyrian king. Remember the, uh, the Assyrian king? Remember there was 185,000 soldiers that were besieging Jerusalem and dropped dead one night, probably from a plague. God just sent a plague, boom, there goes the enemy. You know, God can really handle problems. So, you know, when we're sitting down here and going, well, wh wh where should we turn? How can we look? How can God do this? Don't try to figure out how God's going to do it. Just trust that God will do it. God can do it. God's able to do it. God's able to do stuff that you and I haven't even factored in yet. He's way beyond our, our you know, pay grade, beyond our, our minds, our capability of understanding. God can do these things. So he's thinking this way. Now, I like what Robert Davidson says about Zedekiah. He's a very complex character. He says, he's a strange and fascinating character. He seems almost to have dithered into disaster. He's unable to resist the pressure from the powerful anti-Babylonian lobby among the military in Jerusalem. In other words, they said, break, break off from Babylon. We'll get Egypt to help us. That was bad advice because that's not what God was saying through Jeremiah all along. Then it says, uh, brutally cynical on occasion, he nevertheless seemed to have been haunted by the thought or perhaps by the fear that the true word for his day was to be found not on the lips of his political advisors or, on it, or his official chaplains, but on the lips of that oddball Jeremiah. You know, you know what could he say? I'm gonna have to go out and, you know, Jeremiah was haunting him. His words were haunting him because he could see them coming to pass. You know, on several occasions during the last fateful months of the Judean state, he asked for Jeremiah's diagnosis of the nation's condition and prospects. And then I like what Davidson says. He goes, he is like a patient returning again and again to a doctor in search of reassurance, yet unwilling to take the medicine prescribed. Now, how many people do you know come to you and say, hey, you know, my life's a mess. You know, I, I need to do something about it. And then you're giving them good biblical counsel and they just ignore it. You know, or a doctor tells a patient that, or you know, we could just go on in different fields or expertise. You're telling people this is a good course of action, and they and they and they come to you and they ask for the advice, but then they disregard it. You know, and we do that many times with God's word. Yeah, we're asking God, well, you know, what should I do here? And then when you read it in the Word of God, you go, I don't want to do that. Now it's not the option I wanted. <laughs> you know, we're going to read a little later on in this book. That's exactly what they said. They said, Jeremiah, go find out from God what He wants us to do. Whatever He tells us, no matter what He tells us to do, we're going to do it. Jeremiah comes back and says, this is what God said to do. Oh, that can't be God. Because that's not what I want to do. Isn't that funny? We're like that as Christians, you know? Oh, really? That's not what I want to do. Therefore, it couldn't have been God. Okay. Sometimes God asks you to do stuff that you don't want to do. I'll give you an example. You say, what's an example? Well, somebody hurt me and I don't want to forgive them. 
God says, no, I want you to forgive him. Yeah, but I don't want to forgive him, you know, right? Can you see how we are? God has some very explicit things that he says in the scriptures. And when we don't do those things, we're basically arguing with God. So knowing the right thing to do, but refusing to act on it, that's problematic in all of our lives. So obedience to God's word, which by the way is this will, is the evidence of our love and compliance towards God. So I would say it this way, obedience is the fruit or result of a genuine faith and trust in God. So if you really trust God, you'll do what he says. You know, if you tell me you trust God, but you don't do what he says, I would argue you're probably not trusting God. You say, well, why would you say that, Pastor? Because John says it. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. What does he say? In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. By the way, loving God, isn't that the great, greatest commandment? I mean, I read that in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. First commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? What does Jesus, when they asked him, what does he say? What's the greatest commandment? Love God. But how do you love God? It's pretty easy to say, oh, I love God. He's easy to love. You know, he's invisible. So then we have this practical thing. Yeah, but you got to love people. Oh, that's a little harder. So if you really love God, you got to love people. Well, that, you see, now we're starting to get into where it affects our lives. And then he says, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So genuine faith responds in a way that will honor God. Now, think about what Paul says to the to the uh, Roman church. He says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, I, I read this verse and I go, okay. To me it's real simple. It means that my body is not my own. It belongs to God. So I just don't do what I want to do with my body. I got to do what God's asking me to do with my body. Isn't that what it means to present your body a living sacrifice? You know? I mean, we can apply this in so many ways. You know, we're in, we're in a culture today that people think nothing of sleeping around. God's got a very clear message. This is God's will, you know. He talks about restraining from sexual immorality. Very strong language. That's part of God's will. So if I'm obeying God, I have to tell my body, listen, body, you gotta do what God tells you to do. You're not just doing what you wanna do. You gotta do what God wants you to do. This is what it means to surrender our bodies as a, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. So you know, when we think about worship, it's not just what we're doing here Sunday morning. Worship is a 365 day a week, 724 operation. It's the way I live my life. It's the way I think. It's the way I operate my body, what I'm, what I'm doing. He said, it goes on, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Now, I like J.B. Phillips. He has this little translation of this. He says, don't let the world squeeze, squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the pressure of our society tell you how to think. That's what it means. Do you think there's a lot of pressure today to think a certain way and to act a certain way and, to, and have a certain uh, evaluation of certain things? Of course there is. Tremendous pressure. Don't let them squeeze you into that mold. No, you've got to rebel against that. If you want to rebel, that's what you rebel against. Okay, what do you do then? It says be transformed, be transformed, be literally be changed. How do you become changed? By the renewing of your mind. You say, how do I renew my mind, pastor? I need to be in the word of God. I need to know what God is saying. I need to understand what he's saying. You know, people who don't read the Bible daily, 
They don't think like God. They think like the world. I'm serious about this. I would argue that the people who are being the most changed are the daily Bible readers. And then it goes from daily Bible reading to understanding what God says to acting on what God says. That's what brings transformation in our lives. Listen to what it says here. In Romans it says, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So there's only two paths. I hate to tell everybody this, but it's the truth. I don't even hate to tell you. I'm going to tell you. There's two paths. Here it is. There's God's path, and there's the world's path. The narrow path, the broad path. The way that leads to life, the way that leads to death. You say, well, yeah, but there's all these different ways over here. Yeah, but they're all ending up in destruction. This way leads to life. It's a challenge. We're going to see in this chapter, we're going to have a choice to make, and we're getting right there. The second thing we need to understand is the warning and the choice that God calls for. God responds to this king both with an explanation and a challenge. Look at verse three. Jeremiah answered them, tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I am about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands. I'm gonna take what you have and turn it against you. Wow. What you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you and I'm gonna gather them inside the city. So these guys are thinking, well, we're safe in the city. No, you're gonna have them inside of your city pretty soon. And he goes on to tell them, I myself will fight against you. Now that's probably the strongest language that I can think about. Who's fighting against them now? God is. This is when God becomes your enemy. God's now fighting against you. How many want God as your enemy? Not me, no thank you very much because I know I'm not gonna win that battle. God says, I will fight against you with an outstretched arm, hand and a mighty arm in furious anger and in great wrath. Now these are, these are very strong words and they're, they're really words that bring us back to another time, the Exodus time. You're gonna see that. You know, because remember God says, I'm gonna take you out with a mighty hand out of Egypt. Did God take them out? He took them out of the world power. At that time, Egypt was the world power. God took a nation of slaves right out of the power of a world power because God is stronger than Egypt. He says, I'm gonna fight here. I know this is a tough verse. I will strike down those who live in this city, both man and beast, and they're gonna die of a terrible plague. Strong language. After that, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people of the city who survived the plague, sword, and famine into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who want to kill them. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy, pity, or compassion. Very strong language. How many go, this does not sound good. Pay attention. Now, why? I think we have to understand these words really in light of the covenant God made with his people in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai. You cannot understand what's going on here without that understanding, that background. So what, is, what does God say when he made a covenant with his people? He said this, so if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. I'm gonna pause there. You're going, pastor, you're preaching in the Old Testament. I'm going, yeah, but let me ask you a question. Does that apply to today? Does this verse still apply? Well, Jesus said it did. So this is the big test for all of us. Will we love God with everything within us? And by the way, not to do that is committing the greatest sin. You know, a lot of people don't see themselves as sinners. A lot of nice moral people don't see themselves as sinners. This is the greatest sin, right here. I have to ask myself, do I love God like this? 
That's a powerful challenge. Goes on to say here, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain, new wine, and olive oil. What does God say? If you love me like this, I promise I will take care of you. I will bless you. Does he say that? Sure he is. Goes on to say, I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you're going to eat and be what? Satisfied. You're going to live a satisfied life. No wonder Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to come to give you life and that more abundantly. Paul says, you know what? You and I can live a contented life. He says, I've learned the secret in, in any and every situation, in all and every, in plenty or in want, I've learned to be content. What a way to live life, to live a contented life. Most people on this planet are not contented. I can guarantee you right now, they're not living with satisfaction, you know, it's true. Verse 16, but be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. So there is a battle against our soul. It's designed to seduce us and entice us so that we will put our trust in something other than the goodness of God. That's what the enticement is. Verse 17, then the Lord's anger, when that happens, he said, then the Lord's anger will burn against you. Oh, that's when God becomes our enemy. We've now become idolaters. We're putting our trust in something else and God says, now you're at odds. You say, well, why can God do this? Does he have an inferiority complex? No. He's the creator. He's the maker of everything and he knows what's best for you and me. He created us. When you are the designer of something and you go, this is what's best for this operation of this instrument, this is how it should be handled. Here's the manual. If you don't, if you don't follow the manual and you start doing other things with what I've created for you, you're gonna ruin it. And a lot of times you and I take the operator's manual called the Bible and just throw it aside and we start to do our own thing with our bodies and our own lives and we ruin our own lives. And I can say that because I've been a pastor for four decades and I've seen a lot of ruined lives. And some of you are a little older, you go, yeah, I see a lot of it too. It's very painful. Let's keep going. Deuteronomy, jump over a few more chapters. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to. This sounds like God is against you. It doesn't sound good to me. Until you are destroyed and come to a sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in what? In forsaking him. There's the problem. We can forsake God, and it creates havoc in our lives. Verse 21. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you're entering to possess. The land was a promised land. The land was to be a blessing, but now he says, I'm taking you out of it. The same way I took the nations before you out, I'm gonna take you out. Yeah. The Lord will strike you with a wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. No wonder ba Babylon took them over. You will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. And you will become a thing of horror to all the nations on earth. How many times have we read this Bible and go, what's wrong with these Israelites? Can't they get it together, right? Don't they learn anything? They just keep repeating the same mistakes. And I'm saying, yeah, but that's what we do. True, we're just, we're just Israelites in a new mode. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors, and there you are gonna worship other god, gods of wood and stone. You wanna be an idolater? I'll just put you in captivity. That's all you'll have, idols. You will become a thing of horror, a byword, and an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. 
Wow, that is strong, strong language. Now, after warning them repeatedly over centuries, you know what their response was? Apathy and indifference. I like what F.B. Huey writes. He says, this word sounds harsh and insensitive to modern ears and that have a faulty understanding of God's attitude towards sin and how it offends his holiness. It should be remembered that these words were not spoken in a moment of anger. See, God wasn't angry. I mean, he says he was angry, but I mean, what I mean by that is he wasn't in the heat of anger. He just lost his cool and then he decided to turf everybody. God gave them hundreds of years to repent. How many say, I probably get about five minutes and then I'm ticked off, you know? Our, our degree of, you know, being provoked. How many have ever been provoked? How long can you go? God goes hundreds of years with this provocation. He's doing everything for these people and they're just doing everything to provoke them. And he's merciful and he keeps sending more people. He tells them, hey, here's another chance. And you know, he's like that in our life. You know, you know we, we run and do this and we run and do that and we're doing our own thing and God just keeps coming over and over with grace and love and mercy. You know, he does that. He's so good. He's so patient with us. Until finally one day we, you know, we finally you know, smell the roses. We finally drink the coffee. I don't know. We finally figure it out. We finally realize, man, where have I been? I've been you know, ruining my life. I've been doing my own thing, and it's not working out. Why don't I just do what God wants me to do? Why did God design me in the first place? I need to get in step with his will. And then everything changes. It's amazing what happens. And if you say, well, yeah, but pastor, this is all Old Testament stuff. I go, no, 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 no. You want to know God's attitude towards sin? Here's Paul. He's in the city of Corinth. I'm going to do a series on Corinth in my teaching this fall. Here's a man who's actually sleeping with his father's wife. Now, I'm not going to get into all those details until I teach the class. Very interesting, but the church was aware of it. A lot of reasons. They just thought, no problem. They, they were now tolerant of sin. Everybody can do what they want. No big thing. Paul writes them a letter and says, hey, this is not a good thing. Don't you understand what God is all about? You guys are not representing God very well in the culture. You know, God is against these things. You know, everybody doing that's right in their own eyes. We're gonna have a lot of problems here. So God, when he disciplines people, it's not because he hates us. It's because he loves us. And we see in the story that the church needed to be rebuked by Paul, and he did it. And then he finally says to them, he says, hand this man over to Satan. Wow, that's strong language. Well, what, do, what does he mean by that? If you tell him what he's doing is a sin and tell him, hey, you're not a part of the Christian fellowship. You're outside of it. You're, you're an enemy of God. You're living with the wrong standard. And so what happens is this man is put out and he says, hand him over to Satan. This is when we're no longer protected. Now we've become God's enemy. What does God do? He lets this evil agent called Satan destroy the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Why is God doing this? Every ounce of God's disciplinary action is redemptive. God is trying to restore. He's always in the business of saving. He's always in the business of restoring. Even when he's disciplining us, he's in the business of saving and restoring. We need to get that. So let's pick up our story. Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I'm, settling, I'm setting before you the way of life and the way of death. How many other options are there? You're either alive or dead, right? How many options? How many see it? Two options. This is life, that's death. This is life, that's death. So what's the option here? Well, he goes on to tell them. He says, 
Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live and they'll escape with their lives. So even though they've lost everything, they'll still be saved. This is kind of like the guy that's you know, escaped by the, saved by the skin of their teeth. This is kind of like the guy that was sleeping with his father's wife. You, know, that's, pretty, you say, that's pretty interesting. But a lot of times they were the same age as the children. That was, that was going on. Yeah, you're going to be saved. God wants to save us. He's in the saving business. Walter Brueggemann relates an interesting take on the language used here. He says, it's, no, it's worth noting that the verb to go out is yatsa, which is a primary word for exodus. Perhaps the usage is an accident, as, it's, as this yatsa is a very ordinary word, means go out. But he said, in light of the explicit exodus language, in verse five, and in light of the yearning for wonderful deeds in verse two, may be suggested that Judah's hope is now an exodus away from the bondage of Jerusalem and, and to an odd freedom under Babylon. In other words, if you stay in Jerusalem, you're, you're in trouble. You have to leave the city. Generally speaking, Jerusalem spoke of the presence of God and the hope that there was in God, but God says, I've, I've abandoned the city. Ezekiel gives us a, a vision of God leaving the city of Jerusalem. God's presence is no longer there because God will not abide sin. God will not tolerate sin. God will dress sin in our lives. He's not gonna just let this thing carry on because he knows how destructive it is and how unlike God, sin really is. Sin is the antithesis of who God is. God is without sin. It's an amazing thought. You know when we get to heaven, there'll be no sin. There'll be no disease, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more heartache, there'll be no more confusion, there'll be no more conflict, there'll be no more brokenness. It's an amazing thing. It's an absence of sin because we'll be in God's presence. Jeremiah 20.10, he says, I've determined to do this city harm and not good. Later on, we're gonna find out God determines to do a city good and not harm. That's the one we really like in Jeremiah, right? That's the verse we all want to quote. But this is another verse, and I don't see this hanging on a plaque. I've determined to do this city harm and not good, declares the Lord. Has anybody got this hanging up in your house? No. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. He's going to destroy it with fire. Wow. Doesn't it seem kind of strange to surrender to an oppressive foreign authority? How could that ever be God's will? And yet Jeremiah saw the destruction of Jerusalem and their way of life ending as a part of God's discipline, ultimately in order to redeem them. That was the plan. Trembert Longman summarizes how this action, though seemingly an action that undermines the kingdom, reveals that Jeremiah is no collaborator nor traitor to his people. As he says, the choice is either surrender to the Babylonians and to live under their authority or else to resist and die in the city. Because of the sins of the people, there must be punishment, but there's still a choice. They can leave the city. Either way, the city will be destroyed. It is in light of oracles like this one that we can understand why Jeremiah was accused of being a Babylonian collaborator. Well, he's a traitor. But he's not pro-Babylonian. He's pro-God. And he knows that God is using the Babylonians at least temporarily to affect punishment on Judah. Remember I said, Babylon is a club. God's club. God is using them to discipline his people. Let's move on to the last thing. The false sense of security we live in when we're seduced by sin. It's a false sense of security. One of the greatest dangers in life is that we developed a hardened heart and a resistance to God in our lives. And by the way, this isn't just true of unbelievers, it's also true of Christians. 
You know, I can tell you right now, the people that are the closest to God are the most tender-hearted. You say something and immediately they feel like, maybe it's me, maybe I've done something wrong. There's, a, there's an openness to God, there's an openness to correction, you know. There's a humility. I'm not always right. There's so much more I can learn. You know, we tremble at God's word. There's the fear of God in our lives. God's been warning Zedekiah and the Jewish people of this very thing. They had developed a false sense of security and they were looking to their own abilities and resources. And don't we do that today? Moreover, he says to the royal house of Judah, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says to you, house of David. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. You know, Tremper Longman says the implication of the demand is that these officials were not fulfilling their duty. And so I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, justice. What is justice? Justice is doing what's right. How about the importance of doing the right thing? How important is that? You know, what is required of leaders? What's required of me? What's required of us as believers? What's required of us as a parent or a boss? What's required of us? God's concern is that we administer justice. In other words, we're to defend the oppressed and not become the oppressor. This is equally true in our time. God is still looking for us to do the right thing by others. Somebody want to turn their cell phone off? Is that an emergency? Oh, emergency alert, sorry guys. Well, maybe God's saying this is an emergency alert. You better be listening. Uh, I think God's still looking for us to do the right thing by others. Listen to what Micah says. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, do the right thing, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Actually, if you take that one verse, that's a summary of the whole Old Testament. That one verse, do the right thing, show mercy to people, and walk humbly with God. Isn't that powerful? I love that. Very simple thoughts, how, how powerful this really is. You know, Walter Brueggemann basically talks, says this, he says, the possible escape from judgment in these verses does not come by submitting to Babylon. Earlier it was, but now he's adding another one. But what is the most, but, what, but by doing what is most characteristic for Israel, namely justice. In other words, if you and I will do the right thing, do you think God would discipline us? Of course not. Do you think if this king would have said, God, forgive us, we have done what's evil in your sight, and we ask you to forgive us, don't you think God would have forgiven them? Of course he would have. Do you think God could have delivered them? Absolutely. Babylon's not a problem to God. God raised them up. God can take them down. By the way, he does. Later on in the book, you'll talk about that. You know, when you and I act in obedient response to what God calls us to, God's response is kindness to us. Let me tell you something. The kindest person that's ever lived is God. You and I can't even get close to how kind God is. You and I are, you can, show me the, the kindest person you can find in the world, and they're not even anywhere near as kind as God. We're called upon to act justly, to do what's right on behalf of others. You know, I believe as leaders we're called, you know, we have a, everybody in a leadership role, parent, 
whatever role you're in the leadership, your role is to serve and protect and empower and then help others. That's your role. And when you don't do that, that's bad news for you because God's seeing that. He gives people in positions of responsibility the, the opportunity to serve other people. You know, years ago, our church leaders once asked me, what, 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 is, what can we expect from our fellowship? Well, I mean, what do we get for being a part of our fellowship? You know what my answer was? The opportunity to serve others. Was that the right answer? Of course it was. See, we are always thinking, well, what do we get out of this? I'm going, no, it's what we get to give from this. That's the right attitude. That's the attitude we need to learn as believers. And yet when we, you know, violate God's ways, we find ourselves in opposition to God. We be actually become his adversaries. Look, he says here, I'm against you, Jerusalem. That's pretty strong, wouldn't you say? I wouldn't want to have my name there. I'm against you, Paul. That's not a verse that I want to put my name behind. I don't want God to say to me, I'm against you, Paul. You who live above this valley on the rocky plateau, declares the Lord. You who say, who can come against us? What were these, you know, two thoughts come to my mind as I read this thing. Number one, God is my enemy. And number two, uh, look at the arrogant response by which they're driven to a false sense of false security. They're going, who's going to get us up on this amazing fortress called Jerusalem? And by the way, it was an amazing fortress. But you know, there was a predecessor to the Israelites that they came in and took this city. Remember the Jebusites? Remember when David came up to take the city of Jerusalem? It was an amazing fortress. And this is what the Jebusites said. You know, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. And the Jebusites said to David, you're not going to get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. In other words, our fortress is so impregnable, you're not even going to get in. They thought David cannot get in here. Next verse. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David, which is Jerusalem. You know, by the way, did Babylon get into Jerusalem? Of course they did. Did Rome get into the city of Jerusalem? Of course they did. Why am I saying all of this? Because you and I, whatever we're putting our confidence and security and faith in is our fortress. And the question we have to ask ourselves today is, what is my fortress? In other words, you know, what am I putting my faith in? Who am I trusting? Is that powerful? Yeah. So I say to myself, what can I learn from this text that we looked at? 14 verses. What can we learn from this? Well, where are we putting our trust? Ourselves? Our resources? Those who govern us? Science and technology? All of these things are in and of themselves ultimately unable to sustain us. They're all going to crumble at one point or another because they're of human origin and design. Let me tell you something. I love what the psalmist says. Here's David writing. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my fortress. The Lord is my refuge. See what's going on? We have to ask ourselves, where am I putting my faith and confidence in? You know, I, I was, immediately when I was working on this, I had a character that come to my mind. His name is Samson. We all know Samson's story. Samson was a man that God used in an incredible way. You know, he was used by God to stir up the indifference and apathy that the Philistines had now subjugated and had dominion over the Israelites. God wanted that to break. So he raises up this guy, Samson. And Samson has this enabling power from God. It's the spirit of God that gives him supernatural strength to take on the enemy. Isn't that an amazing story? 
Here's, but Samson had a little problem. He lived a compromised life. We know that. We read about it. You know, the tragedy is that he assumed that how he lived didn't affect his life. And the day came when the enemy fell upon him and he assumed that he would now be empowered by God to do what he had always done in the past and that was defeat his enemies. But he was wrong. Because at that moment, God said, I'm not for you. I'm against you. Look what happens in the story. It says here, uh, well, I'm moving us through. Then Delilah calls to Samson. Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and he thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. That's a very sad statement. Didn't even realize. He had lived such a compromised life for so long, he did not even realize when God departed. Then it says, then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza, bound him with brown shackles, bronze shackles, and they set him to grinding grain in the prison. They took him captive. Can I just say something? That's what sin does. It takes us captive. It'll just, it'll take our lives out. That's the power of it. There's only one power greater than sin, and that's the power of God's grace and forgiveness and redemption. So, we can continue to presume on God's grace, persist in a sinful way, and then think, all is fine, but yet a day will come when God allows us to be defeated and taken into captivity. And why would God let that happen? In order to ultimately salvage our souls. That's why. You know, well, Andrew Dearborn basically says this, God will fight the powers of evil when they oppress his people, but God can also use the powers of evil in this world to judge his people. God is not indifferent to the sins of his people. In spite of the harsh language, annihilation of his people is not God's goal, goal no matter how much it appears to be a necessary option. Historical judgment can be combined with the saving of a remnant, and they become the seeds of renewal and hope. So I'm gonna have a stand as we close. And I'm gonna raise that question. Because everyone in this room, we're hiding behind a fortress. And you just have to determine today which fortress you're hiding behind. You could be hiding behind yourself. You could be hiding behind, you know, your abilities. But what happens when you get sick or you lose that ability? You know, you could be hiding behind, well, these people in the world won't let me down. Don't be so sure. Some of them can't even manage their own lives. It's true. Or you can say, you know what? I'm going to hide behind God. Now, I love how he says it this way in Psalm 18. Let us heed. Uh, he says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. My deliverer, the Lord the God, is my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So I think we need to listen to the warning. This is a warning, it's a challenge, but it's also an encouragement. And I'm gonna pray for all of us today because here's what I'm gonna to say to us. If God be for us, who can be against us? The whole world can be against you, but if God be for you, no problem. Or you can be on the other side and say, well, I'm just gonna embrace everything the world has to offer. And then you might find yourself in opposition to God. And even if the whole world is for you and God is against you, do you think you'll stand? 
I rather doubt. I'm going to hear, you know, we live in a time, I, I think the church right now is under tremendous siege. Tremendous siege. We need to be stronger morally. We need to have courage. We need to be able to say no to sin in our lives, and we need to be able to say, you know, some things are just not healthy. They're destructive. And God is against it, and therefore, I'm not for it. Right? You know, sometimes you end up standing up, you're the lone voice. But if it's, you're the voice of God in that moment, don't worry about it. If God be for you, who can be against you? I think we get so caught up with what the world says and thinks and does. I'm more concerned about what God says, thinks, and does. You have to decide who you're going to please. You have a choice today. Life with God or death over here. Because that's where this is going, destruction. And we're seeing this world unravel really fast. I don't think we can dispute that. It's happening. How many here say, you know what? I need God's strength today. I need God's strength today to be able to stand for God in an hour of darkness. I want to be a friend of God. I want my whole life to be known. Yep, he was a friend of God. Look at the way God took care of him. I can tell you, I can testify. I've been a Christian a long time now. God will take care of you. Just be his friend. Don't get into opposition with God. That's not where you want to be. So Father, I pray today. I just pray that your spirit would speak into our souls, that we would reflect on what we've heard. Lord, we want to live as a friend of God. You are our fortress. You are a refuge. No matter what comes against us, as long as we're with you, Lord, we're secure. We're safe in the arms of Jesus. You can even take my body, but you can't steal my soul. We have freedom in Christ. We have blessings from God. Lord, I just pray today that you would empower us, strengthen us, and help us, oh God, to be able to say no to sin and worldliness, to be able to stand on your side in an hour of great trial and great testing in our world today. Help us to live holy lives lives that would honor you, reveal you, reflect you. We thank you for that, Father. And I pray that you'd give us great courage today, great moral courage. I pray for everyone in this room, we have great moral courage, Lord, that we would be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And we thank you for that, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.